1: And
0: what did you have? What was
3: yours? What language did you speak then? I am
4: a revolutionary. Let's is about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us
3: and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the white house
1: african descent fairly america failed she put And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good
3: evening and thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground where we speak truth to power and ourselves. Thank you for being with us. I'm hoping that you have a great weekend and you had uh, a wonderful, productive week. And we want to start out tonight in... um, Hoping that you have in some way connected with, engaged for, and on behalf of our community somehow and in some way. Tonight as we come into the program, and we thank you, we do thank you for being here with us, we want to um, just take a, a, a tiny moment because we do have a very special guest tonight with us. We want to take a, a very Special moment uh, to make note of something that we can be distracted from. Uh, I know that many of you are still sweating from the nervous breakdown that you had over uh, House of Representative Paul Ryan this week, who once again, uh, using very uh, racially charged code language, told us who we are. Well, one of the things that nobody's talking to him back about is that we know who we are. We know who we think. We know who we think he is as well. And there's been a lot of distraction over the missing plane, and it's somewhere in the Indian Ocean or over the Indian Ocean, or however. And um, of course the situation that's going on between uh, the Ukraine, the country, sovereign country of Ukraine, and Russia, and uh, the powerful Putin has uh, decided that he's going to make his move, and America has decided that somehow that move has something to do with us. They haven't made it very clear, but I think it starts with an I, the big can you spell I-R-A-N. But we will see how all of those things fall out. But we cannot be distracted from that in this year, 50 years ago, President Lyndon Johnson used his first State of the Union address to urge an all-out war on poverty and unemployment in these United States, and it was called the War on Poverty, as a set of social programs enacted in 1964 and 1965 uh, came to be called this War on Poverty. Well, we want to note that um, the official poverty rate as calculated by the Census Bureau has fallen only modestly from 19% in 1964 to 15% in 2013. We are a country who touts that we are the greatest nation on the planet, and 50 million of our citizens live in poverty. And we should not be distracted by the rhetoric of some racist little um, twerp who happened to have lived all of his life off of taxpayer money for the most part and all of his adult life. He only had a job for three years of his life and now he sits in a cushy job being paid by the federal government Um, your taxpayer dollars, uh, his health insurance, his life insurance, and his retirement. He came into the position, into this cushy job, never having had a real job because he worked for a family business, never having a real job, and he has the audacious gall to talk about people who can't find jobs and label them as lazy and label the culture from which they are unable to find job jobs, their children are unable to go to schools that are fully qualified to educate them and call them lazy. Well, you know, it, we live in an era. Be Be not distracted by this because, after all, Paul Ryan is a nationalist. He is beyond patriotism. He and that crazy man, Rick Perry in Texas, and that other crazy man, Scott Walker in Florida, and the list goes on and on, and the entire pool, sets of legislators in the House of Representatives, they are all insane. They are insane with hatred and, and a vile ignorance that is going to doom this country. And as long as they want to demonize poor people, they need to understand that demonization is on both sides, and who remembers the Madoffs and the Enron crowd, who remembers how the American taxpayers, including you and me, bailed out hundreds of criminals who had corrupted our banking system and this economy to the point that we are still crawling on our knees along with the lazy people that they are talking. So there we have it. And the other question is, For the week, try to figure out how we can bail out the people of Crimea and the people of Ukraine with taxpayer dollars, but we couldn't bail out Detroit. Think about that. Think about the criminals and the lazy, besotten, Folks who sit in their cushy jobs in the congress because don't don't get it crooked. this president has no item veto uh, powers he has no real powers in our government. The economy is driven by the regulations and the laws promulgated in the Congress. so I just want before we get started tonight. For you to start your week out on Monday morning thinking about poverty in this country, 18 million people who got no checks this week, 18 black families who had black boys either murdered or mangled by police who were not charged, arrested, or convicted, Start your mo- Monday morning on that. Do not be dis- distracted by Paul Ryan, who is nothing more than a puppet. Not for the Tea Partiers. He is a puppet for Alec. That's where he. That is how he has become a millionaire because he has sold. Is both his ignorance and his soul to the wealthiest of this country who could care less about what happens to its economy or its people. Thank you again for being with us here tonight. tonight we're going to be meeting with once again Dr. Tabiti Lewis. He is the author of Ballers of the New School, and uh, we're glad to, to have him join us. And we hope that you have lots of questions about race and sports in America. So let's get started. Our number is 347-838-9852. Worldwide number, 347-838-9852. And this is our common ground. Good to have you all with us. If you're listening on a smart device and you would like to join our chatters in our chat room, Please, you are welcome to come to www.blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG and come right on in the chat room and all you regulars make some seats up front for those folks. This is our common ground. Just take
4: bowling. Let's
5: get I'm this out of the way. They don't want to give anything up. Someone's going to give something up. give ridiculous. Gentlemen, 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 please. We've been at this all night. We have to come to some agreement. Otherwise, we're going to end up with black golfers, female race car drivers, and boxers who aren't Italian or even Irish. This guy wants me to take a Well,
1: What am I supposed to do with gymnastics? I don't know. What am I supposed to
3: no, 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 do? Guys, settle down. You've got a deal on the table. Football for hockey.
5: Fine, take it. No wait. We got hockey. It's the sport of the future. It's the best of figure skating and boxing. Fine. Deal. But the whites keep quarterback. Oh no, we want every
1: position. But without white quarterbacks, who's going to open our steak houses and car dealerships? No way. We need every. Let me
3: let me get this straight. There's gonna be eleven black guys and one white guy,
5: and we can do anything we want, anything.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And there won't be any German shepherds or fire hoses
5: turned on. Policemen with sticks. No, we would never do anything like that. Deal. Deal. <laughs> we got football. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, what?
0: Your uh, 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 You Oh, what?
2: Taste good. Whoa, oh, what is that? That's uh, how we celebrate a victory. It goes back to Africa.
4: All right, fine. The blacks get football. What about the Hispanics? We want baseball.
1: We are very good at it. My own boy, little Jose, he's two years old. Can mash a ball 300 feet. My wife, Esther, is feeding him a special herb called oid. It makes him very strong. We call it a steroid. Lights, please. Observe before...
5: Uh, uh, okay.
4: yeah. and after.
5: Oh all right god bless you all right great that's settled now the white delegation has been very generous with the blacks we've given you football we've given you track and most of field can we please, please
3: have luge i don't know
2: i grew up with luge I come from a long line of lugeous, my no, no. Father? We okay. have
1: to have luge. Oh, the excitement of the wind
2: rushing past your face. Right. okay, 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 okay. <laughs> okay. come down, come down. I got it, I got it.
5: I'll tell you what. You give us luge, we'll give you basketball. Bast- basketball? What would a black man do with a basketball?
1: Yeah, a black man could never match the white man's speed, finesse, and great lipping ability. Okay.
5: I'll tell you what. We'll give basketball a shot if you take fly fishing off our hands. Oh, oh, oh. I don't know. No, fly fishing is so ethnic.
0: Please. All right,
5: you got a deal. We can shh, Good. Race
3: and Sports in America. Tonight at Our Common Ground, the author, Ballers of the New School, Race and Sports in America, Dr. Tabiti. Lewis. Stay
0: tuned.
5: Yeah, I'm a literature guy, so kind of playing with this whole hip-hop. Uh, Baller uh, language and saying, you know what? Let's let's really look at what does it mean to be a baller, but also looking at this particular generation of athletes as a sort of new jack and saying, you know, Mm -hmm. what is it? What what does that particular athlete? What kind of challenges does it present to contemporary uh, America and American sports culture? And how does this particular post generation, post civil rights generation athlete, this baller (laughs) athlete, if you will, what kind of uh problems does it present for, um, for, for uh, American culture, if you will, and particularly those sports writers who right. I think are, you know, pretty much uh, used to, I don't know, three or four decades ago. They're looking for, you know, Babe Ruth. They're looking for the athletes from their grandfathers and fathers. And the response is really a response to them is a response to, you know, I think quite in their minds indignant or belligerent uh, black folk or non white or, you know, contemporary athletes. I would say mostly people of color who non white or, you know, contemporary athletes. I would say mostly people of color who don't really who who haven't accepted what their place is supposed to be. Yeah. But then at the same time I'm playing with this whole idea of, you know, kind of ballers in the sense of you know being you know living life fabulously, being in control, calling shots, and I'm attempting to say,
0: <coughs> hold
5: up, let's really look at what that means. And so you know I kind of outline the book, looking at um, you know there's a tradition that exists of a certain consciousness and activism, uh, a certain commitment and purpose, uh, a certain intellectual development, uh, and uh, as well as saying you know understand what it really means to be a baller, and that's a certain longevity. I mean, my uh,
4: it's high. The way I look at it within myself, why not? Why can't I be the MVP of the league? Why can't I be the best player in the league? I don't see why. Why? been working hard. My teammates been helping me out a lot. The veterans have been helping me out. I can tell when a player truly wants to be better. A player truly wants to be better. And I'm
0: that. I'm
5: not the quality that I, that I have. What I'm making is that where is the consciousness? And so my book is said, wait a minute, where is the consciousness within our communities, amongst parents that what becomes the number one thing? Education you've got to write your way to freedom. you've got to literally be able to write your own ticket. So it's just a vehicle. That's like a lottery ticket. The, you, you, the chances of, of scratching off and winning are diminished. So where do we develop this sort of infrastructure? We've got the organization. Yeah. From city to city, our athletes that are uh, young athletes from our community, because I said we've got all this gold and we, we're, the communities are bankrupt, right, that are going to these different colleges and say, okay, look, what's most important? How do we make sure this is, this is what we expect? But we can't just do it at that level. What happens in sixth grade? fourth grade, fifth grade, seventh, eighth, that the kids get a sense of what's most important because they follow our lead. So if they're deciding that that's not important, then we, might be giving them the, we may be giving them the sense that, yeah, that's not that important, you know? And so I think it's very important that we establish that sort of infrastructure to make it. So it is, it's, it is incumbent upon the parents that that's the number one thing.
2: Excuse me, is there nothing for the chosen people?
1: When were you ever chosen for a sport?
0: <laughs>
2: but there must be
1: something that we could do for out on those simple fields
5: where boys become men and glory is seized by brave gladiators. It was Theodore Dreiser, the son of a rabbi. who. All right, all right, please. I'll tell you what. You're going to have sports writing.
0: All
3: right. This is our common ground. Thank you for joining us tonight. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast
2: at a time. Stay tuned with Janice Graham.
1: You're a client. You're my client.
3: Tuned into our common ground. Transforming truth to power. One
5: broadcast at a
1: time. And now, Janice Graham.
3: Although sports is one of the dominating cultural practices in the social life of the United States, it traditionally is viewed as a discrete social phenomenon, largely untouched by the problems of American society. From impersonations of Venus Williams to Michael Vick's band to Gabby Douglas's hair, there is a race's beat in the music of sports in America. We're joined tonight by Dr. Tabibi, Tabidi Lewis to talk about race and sports in America. He is the author of Ballers of the New School. It is one of the first and best books to come along that effectively explains contemporary athletes and the public response to them. It asks us to consider the role of race in the sweaty as well as the sweat-free zones of the sports. Dr. Tabidi Lewis is from St. Louis, Missouri, where he grew up. And after spending a few years after high school and Um, graduating from the University of Rochester School of Education with a master's in English. He became a high school teacher and uh, working as a high school teacher and a university lecturer, freelance writer, newspaper columnist, and radio host, he obtained his doctorate in English from St. Louis University. He taught at Wilma Met University, he was a member of the English department, and was instrumental in the development of the American Ethnic Studies program there. He was awarded a Lilly Library grant in 2012, and was selected to participate in the NEH Summer Institute about Contemporary African American Literature. In 2014, he became a visiting scholar in the Center for the Humanities at Washington University in St. Louis. He is currently an associate professor of English at Washington State University, Vancouver. He's written for several newspapers, magazines, journals, and uh, such as The Source, Crisis Magazine, News One, The St. Louis American. He has also contributed several political and cultural commentaries to cable and radio programs. This is his second visit to Our Common Ground. In December of 2010, he published this pioneering book about sports, race, and American culture, Ballers of the New School, Race and Sports in America, published by our friend Hakim Adabudi's. Third World Press. Prior to uh, this, he edited and co-edited some special issues of journals and and is completing a book-length study about the art of politics in the fiction of the writer Tony Coday Bambara. He is also at work on a study of the performance of heroism, race, and gender in four American Sports Museums, and Dr. Tabiti Lewis, we are so very glad to have you back with us, and thank you for joining us tonight. And you are twirling in the wind, and it goes round and round and round. <laughs> We're trying to bring him on air, and the little icon is going round and round and round. Dr. Lewis, can you hear me? Okay. Blog Talk Radio, let's get it together here. Thank you again for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Uh, We uh, hope that you have lots of questions, and our nationwide number is 347-838-9852. Write it down. It's 838-9852 as we try to bring Dr. Tabidi Lewis, on the air, and it's still going round and round. Hold on for a second. Give me a second here. Dr. Lewis, we're going to have to ask you to dial in again because there's a problem. There you are. Hello? Dr. David Lewis, thank you so very much for... Hi. Uh, you yeah, are still I'm on going round line. and round on the other on the other one thanks for being with us again it's good oh, to so have you, you couldn't get me on the other oh wow okay all right
5: no problem all right okay.
3: yeah. <laughs> we're all
5: set Yeah, now. i've been sitting waiting the entire time and i yeah, was on another 503 okay
3: thank you so much for being with us uh tonight and being with us again it's been a while
5: it has been a while but it is a pleasure to be back thank you for inviting me again
3: and congratulations. You know, the last time you were with us, you had just uh, finished uh, publications of Ballers of the New School, and we promised that we would get together again, and time flies when you're having fun and being in the era of Obama. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's how I classify things over the last six years. So tell us, uh, since you wrote the book, has there been much change? Has there been much public dialogue sufficient to change some of the issues uh that were uh tantamount uh uh in your and highlighted in, in the book? Doctor Lewis? Something is going wrong all over the place. But let me tell you a little about the book, and he'll call back in. Uh, The text really encourages a restructuring of the power of the racial subtext. Now everybody's having a problem. Dr. Lewis?
0: Yes, can you?
3: Dr. Lewis, are you there? I was hearing a little whistle. Whistle, Uh, bring us up to speed about uh, the power of the racial subtext in our sports arena and in uh, organized sports in America. Can you hear me? Hello? I'm here. I can hear you.
5: Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, Okay, great, great. Great. All right. I'm, so, I'm not sure what, what occurred, um, uh-huh. but let's get this thing moving straight. You asked me, the first question was whether or not do I, there has been sufficient change. I do not think there's been sufficient change. However, I would be incorrect if I say that not much has gone on that has been progressive. What is unfortunate to me is that many of the, the issues that I raise continue to cycle, In our society, Um, the one good thing that I see occurring is I have a section in the book that engages this question of uh, student athletes and the recent activity of the Northwestern football team to uh, be seen to engage to position themselves uh, as within a union. I think is positive because a big component, one big chapter of my book, Big Pimping in Collegiate Sport, really focused in on the exploitive nature of collegiate, you know, of collegiates, Mm -hmm. particularly the high-revenue collegiate sports. And so uh, those very efforts of the Northwestern football team uh, has and the, you know, Ed O'Banion case uh, regarding the NCAA continuing to profit without paying collegiate athletes for using their images in video games, et cetera, uh, you know, those are real issues that, uh, you know, it just has to be brought uh, to public notice and, and ceased. Regarding issues of, of race and inequity, uh, I think we continue, this continues to persist. And, uh, of course, the subtexts are always subtle, but I, st- I think still very persistent, If you look at, for example, the recent issue with Richard Sherman and his, um, you know, the whole conflict around him making comments about um, being disrespected when he made the final play that deflected a ball away for his team to go to the Super Bowl, and that somehow being turned into him being somehow scary or thuggish or what have you um you know these are i mean i was just problematic and i i I wrote about this and so you know as i have in the last two and a half years since the book came out which it really came out in 2000 uh or three years came out at the end of 2010 so the last three years unfortunately many of the things that i raise the questions they continue to keep cycling and people will call, call me or contact me and say wow you know, just as you said, you know these issues this issue these issues are the same so
3: mm-hmm,
5: uh, mm-hmm. you know so that, it's really
3: interesting because i I'm not a big um sports person i'm, I, I'm I, the only uh sports that I really get interested in is tennis and golf, and mm-hmm. um I have followed sports since I, the last time we talked, and after reading your book in the context of your book. By the way, for all of you who are listening, this is a wonderful book to understand and to really see what you are not seeing and hearing in news reports relative to sports characters and players and, and this whole. I am just, Tabidi, I am just, uh, to BD, I am just uh, very, very so encouraged by what the college players are doing now in regard to unionizing.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean that Me is too. just so
3: empowering. I, I I'm just yeah. I'm just really moved by that.
5: Yeah. Do I, I you mean, think? Look. Go ahead.
3: Do you think that it is going to make a difference in terms of how African American students and athletes will begin to uh, benefit from the economy of sports? <sighs>
5: It will. It won't be as rapid as we would like it to occur. I mean, you have, we, we have to understand the system of collegiate sport, particularly in terms of the uh, high-revenue sports, football, basketball. I mean, those are, as I point out in my book, the cash cows. And sadly enough, those two, those two sports are primarily – the primary participants happen to be African American young men, and also it is a uh, slave scenario or a. Uh, and I know people are like, oh, he's saying slave scenario. It is it, it. It's the ultimate of capitalism, because these contracts are one year renewable, based upon the whims or the uh, very subjective regarding what the coach or the athletic program decides. Um, as far as whether or not they'll renew it, if my behavior uh, is deemed uh, acceptable or my play I mean, they can come up with any reason not to renew that scholarship, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so you have, unfortunately, uh, a good number of these individuals are come from impoverished backgrounds. So the feeling is this is a great opportunity, and they don't have parents who have the the uh the uh, maybe the financial background or educational background to really con- to construct the kind of leverage that's necessary now there are some people who i've been meeting throughout the country as i've been speaking uh who are trying to who've been successfully organizing young men and women but these young people uh like uh the, the, there's a program called uh, scrimmage line and you know, that are trying to give them the kind of education and the, uh, the empowerment to uh, negotiate effectively regarding these scholarships uh, and how to navigate that situation. But, you know, it's just um, – it's, it's a slow road. I mean, I think that the NCAA has billions of dollars to fight the, uh, this battle, and if you look at, for example, and I hope I don't appear to be jumping too much, but even the Ed O'Banion case, whereby you know he's taken on the NCAA, uh, what they did is they decided to sue the company <laughs> that was making the video games because they that company acquiesced and said, okay, yeah, you know we should pay. And so the, when you, my point is that this is a great system for those. Inc- that are benefiting from it, the athletic directors, the programs, the universities, the free, the free advert advertising, the additional alumni dollars that flow to these programs, the big television contracts, uh, the apparel companies, uh, from Adidas to Reebok to you know Nike, they get free, um, free advertisement. What I mean by that is they pay a fee. They pay the schools money, but they're not paying all of the the students that are wearing the apparel uh, for you know for wearing the product. I remember a case where uh, a college player who went on to become a pro was uh, at a game and he didn't like the, sh- the Nike shoes and he felt more comfortable in another brand, and literally uh this guy was an assistant coach. He had to tell uh the player who was uh uh I forgot I can't remember the player's name at the moment it escapes me <clears throat> that look you they were they talked him back into wearing the shoes because they needed to keep the contract and if he didn't wear their shoes then they you know they're basically violating that contract. So well, if an, You
3: know, one of the things and, that you focus on a lot in the book is um advocating for more parent uh, education and information because Mm -hmm. there are a lot of parents I know even in my own family where I have a grandson who's six foot tall at 12 years old,
0: Mm -hmm. and
3: he is constantly told um, that uh, he should – try out for this and try out for that and try out for the other. I mean, people are, mm-hmm. will ring your doorbell and say, excuse me, what school does he go to? We, uh, you know, and, and, and parents are, in many ways in our community, are banking on athlete, athletic programs as a way of getting their kids through college. So what kind of information does the average parent need to have to understand what that system is all about as coaches, as recruiters, or spotters, and, and uh, I've I forgotten the, the term that they use when they're in high school, the watchers, <laughs> the, yeah.
5: the piranhas. Let me say, <laughs> I mean, no, no, you're right. These, um, th- let me say three things on that, because you're right, and that's a key component within my text. And so the first thing is this question of, I think that one can't effectively critique uh, any exploitative system, Um, can't speak out against uh, capitalism or or white supremacy uh, without also being critical of sexism, you know, exploitation in general. But we also have to be self-critical, and I think that we – have run into a problem within our communities whereby somehow we've abandoned the knowledge that educating ourselves and preparing ourselves intellectually is the key, more so than uh, participating in or cultivating our skills for sport. And so that's why I'm always talking about the sweat-free zone, the sweat-free zone. So I think that as community members, and parents, uh, one of the things that I've been working on is putting together town halls around the country to educate them, as you say, regarding number one, okay, how does the system work? That you know, this is there's, this is a it is an exploitative system, but how can we control the dynamics and negotiate what uh, will will work for our for the young uh, for the individuals uh, engaging in these contracts that are be renewal are the coaches willing to guarantee, put in writing, that they are going to provide a four-year scholarship as long as they maintain their grades? Um, and if they are really interested in these individuals, then they'll be, be willing to do that. Uh, but, but also, more than anything, we have to understand that 2% of those participating you know, in, in these you know, collegiate athletics go pro. So there's a 90%, 98% aren't going to make it uh, as a pro player. So buy a lottery ticket, uh, you may have just as good of a chance, so, all right? So, so we have to focus in on that part. And, um, and that, you know, that, I mean, that's just number one. And so we have to be self-critical, and we have to be really serious and, and, uh, about, you know, these kind of negotiations. But what it also speaks to, Janice, is the fact that, you know, in all this talk about post-racial, et cetera, et cetera, if, if, if people within our communities, if if people's mentality is that they feel they have a better chance of going to college by achieving an athletic scholarship, then that shows you just how bad things have become, okay? Mm-hmm. How desperate our situations um, in this society, whereby well, the resources have become even more um, pushed uh, on the side of those who are wealthy. I mean, we the the truth is we live in an oligarchy, and, and basically that the last what I'm saying is that there's a small percentage that owns a very large percentage of the resources, and they control all of those dynamics, you know. And uh, so I don't want to get off into a whole nother so rant, how do, but how yeah, do those are the things get- that I think.
3: How do communities get your town hall? Because I think that this is important. Because I think that African American children in high school and in junior high school are more likely, if they're playing playing a sport, to get um, um, scholar, uh, sports scholarships than they are to get academic scholarships. That seems that's one of the fallouts of um, of a racial, a racialized America.
5: Yeah. Well, I think, again, I'm looking inward and saying I think we also have to uh, focus and invest our resources in academic programs. So one of the things that I've been working on is what I call a two-a-days camp that's part of my New School Solutions Foundation and also as part of this sort of um, um, developing sweat-free zones and so if we can use sport programs in summers to get kids involved uh in learning uh core and developing and practicing core academic skills we can begin to make them see the pragmatic use and application of uh math science and and uh and literacy skills you know writing skills mm-hmm. that are transferable to being involved in sport culture and beyond uh, but but, how it can be applied um, in uh you know in sports, but it 's the same kind of drilling, so developing math skills around statistics, probability you know fractions, et etc, because we live in a society I was reading an article in the Atlantic, but we all know this where data management is very key to all decisions that are made, and so if you understand that data management requires uh, uh solid math skills, then one begins to understand, okay, this is how this is applicable. Uh, If you begin to think about marketing and the importance of literacy and mastery of language to convey messages, then we begin to focus on these sorts of things. And so I just think that uh, that kids can – and then if we can – take what they're learning regarding, uh, you know, kids are happy. I, I give these lectures, and kids are happy to. if the coach says shoot a 1,000 jump shots a day, you'll improve your game. Well, do a 100 math problems a day, and you'll improve those skills. You know, write for an hour, a half an hour a day, or read for, you know, these are, this, these are just practice drills. Mm-hmm. And so we have to, you know, make this kind of language translatable, and we have to make it translatable to the parents as well. And so, I mean, I just think that, we have to really use that kind of language of uh, of just this kind of exercising within our communities. I mean, I think we we, we also, the, the parents are key to this. I think the parents are key. I've been in at book signings having arguments with parents who have said to me, my kid's best chance of going to college is getting a scholarship to play sports. And I'm saying to them, I disagree. I think that... You know, that is not the only way. And I think that's a mythology that people have bought into. uh, Well, I think it looks
3: at, you know, how universities have mirrored um, mirrored the trends of the NCAA across the country. You know, I remember uh, back when the University of North Carolina, for instance, uh, generated $17 million in revenues. So it gave it gave the university an opportunity of of grants and athletic grants and scholarships that comprise 30 percent of the school's total revenue for the year.
0: Yes, yes.
3: And and I think that 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 is really a um, it it it, it digs a big problem in our community. And and two things that I do want to talk to you about is this perpetuation of the myth of the black athletic superiority and the graduation rates and of course when you talk about black athletic superiority you're only talking about what i call the monster teams that's football mm-hmm. uh hockey and um and um and um and wrestling but black participation in other sports, for instance, golf and luge. <laughs> if you heard the, if you heard mm-hmm. the clip, I heard the key and <laughs> peel
5: the key and peel, uh, uh, kit. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um,
3: if you, I mean, and and then how um, that weighs in on um, the idea that you're just talking about is our community's focus on uh, sports, for sports scholarships. So let's talk about the graduation rates. Um, There is a high participation of African Americans in the NCAA, um, but the on-court success is not easily translated into the classroom. So when you talk about these things in your book, since the publication of the book, have there been... I know that there have been some efforts, but have those efforts been
5: effective? Um, Yes and no. I think the first step to solving any problem is vocalizing that there's a problem, right? And so uh, we never begin to move towards solutions if we don't acknowledge that there's a problem and talk about, you know, strategies to solve it. And uh, unfortunately, those graduation rates aren't getting vastly better uh, as they should. For example, I think uh, the statistics show, uh, say, in collegiate basketball and football, African-American athletes tend to have lower graduation rates than uh, their white peers. And I know that that is not because um, uh, uh, all of those players are going pro early, right? We know that. Because only so many people can go, can make it to the pro in either of those, any you know either of those sports. So we know that's not the issue. Uh, part of the issue is what we were speaking to earlier, and that is um, one: we have a system that really is not seeing them as students. Amateur athletics is, in many ways, cultivated as, uh, as a sort of um, uh, semi-pro or farm club kind of engagement. And um, number two, there is this issue around uh, what kind of academic support um, exists to um, for them to develop you know their skills. I was uh, reading an article about a young man a University of Tennessee quarterback who's a freshman who is uh, majoring in uh, um, aero engineering um, and because he wants to uh, uh, be a pilot and work on you know build planes and and uh, he's taking you know high level courses and um, but unfortunately, you know the um, the way in which the system is set up because it is a professional business, they aren't allotted the kind of time to take uh, courses curriculum that would uh, that is extremely challenging, or that has labs and things of that nature. And quite frankly, Janice, if you are taking classes that conflict with the schedule for you to do film, work out, go to practice, <laughs> see that you know nutrition training, you know the other eight to ten hours a day that they are asking of you, or at least eight, and you decide that you're going to uh, take your uh, take a uh, engineering lab or, you know, whatever, biology lab, and it conflicts with practice time, you may not, your scholarship may not be renewed. So I think that, that is problematic. And the, the grow, low graduation rates function on, you know, I think two of the, two levels. I mean, like you said, the University of North Carolina situation, yes, these young men are ill-prepared, but the problem with that particular issue is that it, it conflictss it confirms these sort of mythologies that, oh, all of these athletes, of particularly of color, they're not really students. They're just here to play sport. And that's not true for all of them. And we also know that it's a system that's not set up that, that to encourage student-athlete. That's why I use the term athlete-student. I reverse it, uh, I, and I literally mean that. But I think it also comes back to, you know what's happening within our communities, and where's this value toward you know developing one's intellectual self and academics? You know, number one, I mean, I wish people would stop donating new gyms and facilities, and instead donate uh, the uh, SAT ACT uh, prep course uh, <laughs> time, so that mm-hmm. uh, or or money for the libraries, so that we could we could you know more of our kids could. Uh, make, you know, uh, do well and, and qualify to get into good colleges and, and thrive in these spaces. You know mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the graduation rates are good in schools like Duke, et cetera, because they're recruiting a certain kind of kid. They're recruiting kids like my kids who have the academic preparation that allow them to partake in a grueling amateur-slash-professional uh, schedule. And do well in school because they you know they've they 've taken calculus and they've you know they've taken they have the kind of financial back uh not financial they have financial <laughs> they have a financial background in their parents' class status but they they have the academic uh foundation that allows them to do well in this kind of space so a school like Duke is able to be a high quality institution graduate a good number of their kids um and do well, and and the and the sport team does well, you know, mm-hmm. um, but but that is not the case in many of the other spaces.
3: Mm-hmm. And, in in uh, chapter so, three of your book, one of the things that you do is talk about the original ballers like Michael Jordan and some of the new school ballers. I mean, I had a situation. I thought about you. I started to call you. I um, was having lunch in a restaurant. Um, last year, and um, and a, a guy came up to me, and he was very handsome, and his arms were just filled with um, tattoos.
5: tattoos, and it
3: kind of um. took me back, and he said, gee, you look just like my mother and i said oh is your it, how does your mother look and she says he said i always thought my mother was so beautiful and i was watching you and you are so beautiful and i said thank you so um the waitress was uh, delivering my my lunch and um i invited him to sit down cuz he was so tall that i was about to break my neck looking up
0: <laughs> and
3: he introduced himself as Aaron Hernandez,
0: oh. and oh.
3: Wow. Uh, so okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't even know who he was, and, and I looked at him, and I said, it's really interesting that you say I look like your mother, but you look like my grandson. When he gets to be an adult, he will look just like you, and, hmm. and so we were just chit-chatting, and then he told me who he was. And I said, well, I've only been, I've been in in, in the in Patriots country forever, but I've only been to two games, <laughs> and I'm not really interested. And I asked him about his life and how he got to play football, and we talked about my grandson wasn't allowed to play football because my daughter was very concerned about head injury and other kinds of injury and uh and we talked and we had a nice lunch together. We ended up having a very nice <laughs> lunch together. And so I thought, well, maybe my grandson knows who he is cuz I don't know who he is. But I was just <laughs> mesmerized.
2: Was... <laughs> and we took uh, a picture uh...
3: together.
2: Oh, nice.
3: And wow. um and and so some months later uh after I had told everybody, oh, I had lunch with this guy who's a Patriots Player and and one of the things that we talked about, I talked to him about race and playing in professional football. And um, I happen to be uh, a native of Florida, and he went to the University of Florida and played football. And I told him I grew up at a time where University of Florida didn't allow black students and that got us into a discussion about whether he thought he was Hispanic or whether he thought he was black, and, and, and we talked about a lot of things. And then months later, of course, he's arrested for murder. So, <laughs> but when I was talking to him, when I was talking to him, I was thinking about your book and this whole concept of what you call the New School Ballers, and this guy, I mean, he indicated to me that he was engaged to a black woman and we had to have a discussion about she was Dominican and she wasn't African-American and she wasn't black. Uh, she was just she was African, Dominican-American. And we went through all of that stuff. I mean, we ended up spending like two and a half hours together because I found him very interesting. He was very articulate. He could follow some of the issues that I was talking about, and that was – that, that was enough for me. But mm-hmm. I was thinking mm-hmm. about your book, and, and I was clearly saying, here is Aaron Hernandez, who is a new school baller. He's not going to let a club tell him what to do or who he is. He is going to follow some cultural and, and race identity um, framework that he grew up in. Uh, because he did talk about having a hard time living up in that part of Foxwood. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so um, that when he first moved there, you know, the cops would follow him around because they didn't know who he was until they found out who he was, that kind of thing. And, I'm, and I was saying to myself, this is what Tabidi is talking about in his book. This guy is a new school baller. And was he not? Well, but but aside from that, who to are some these extent,
5: right? Involved? I mean, we <laughs> I mean, but what's missing is we. You have this this the the brashness, the outspokenness, the uh, the willingness to um, to not, for example, turn the other cheek. There's a semi consciousness, but what's missing is. Uh, so we we've got that part, and. Um, and that that sort of um unwillingness to try to uh you know I know one of the epigraphs for that chapter is John O'Neill, where he says racism systematically verifies itself when the slave can only break free by imitating the master by contradicting his own reality, so there's not this you don't have this overt need to mimic to make sure people feel comfortable to see that I look just like you, I'm dressed just like you i'm you know that sort of thing. And so part of that is what creates some of the tensions, right, which is you know, heroes are people that people want to imitate, em- emulate. And in sport culture, these sort of iconic or, you know, quote, I'm putting in quotes, heroic figures become people that are individuals that young people want to emulate. So They're like, oh, man, I'd like to do that too. I want to wear, I'm going to get tattoos, or I'm going to just kind of, you know, uh, express myself freely and uh, not try to, you know, imitate what may be deemed acceptable, you know, because, like, well, who's deciding that? But mm-hmm. what's missing is in that section. And, then, and, and so then what's missing is a sort of Bill Russell, because you're in Boston, right, uh, okay. consciousness, the Jim Brown consciousness, the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar consciousness um, that says, wait a minute, who am I? Uh, how do I deal with these sort of, you know, indignities, racial, you know, inequities, um, uh, showing the kind of commitment to uh, really uh, trying to change communities that one is coming out of. You know, where is that real consciousness? Uh, And so on one level, it's a very complex dynamic because – There's also a lot of young folk who want to be like Mike, if you will, right? Uh, So I'm not saying, like, you know, Mike is really this old school, but he becomes this sort of iconic, this model where, you know, and a symbol of racial progress when we know that, yes, there's been some racial progress, but not in the sense uh, of what people What people want us to think about, right? He's he's more of an aberration, if you will, and part of that is that embrace that success comes through this sort of constructing a this sort of uh, neutral uh, persona in politics. But no one asked Larry Bird to be neutral. No one asked John Stockton. No one asked that of Tom Brady, of Peyton Manning, of Eli. You know what I'm saying? And I can go uh-huh. on and on. And so uh-huh. that's really the point I'm trying to yeah. to make is that, you know, uh, I have there's this expectation for comfort, and so it becomes very complex. But they see themselves; um, these these individuals see themselves as corporations. And so we have this sort of apolitical engagement, but, but it's complicated because on one hand, they are expressing this sort of hip-hop, do you, uh, keeping it real, that comes out of the black arts movement, black power, kind of dynamic that says, no, we're going to look at our own culture, and we're going to look within, and these kind of models in which to you know represent self, because only then can you really uh, mine the very beauty and integrity that is necessary. But um, but at the same time they there's so there's this real dynamic real dilemma, if you will, with trying to be like Mike, which is neutral and vanilla, but then also uh trying to express oneself, but then they're apolitical. We don't have the Jim Brown kind of figures. And when those individuals do emerge, they are punished or are banished or or pushed away, you know. Uh, they're like my man Mahmoud Abdul raouf or Eton Thomas. They're not going to give them. Those individuals aren't going to get the uh, cameras and the spotlight because that's dangerous. Free thinking, uh, uh, con- political consciousness, that's dangerous. That's always been punished. I mean, the greatest joke and example is you know Muhammad Ali. I mean, I was a kid during the 70s you know in 80s but you know particularly in the 60s and 70s uh when he was reviled you know <laughs> and yes. then when, when people yes. talk about him in the late 19 in the late 20th and 21st century He's this, you know, this, this larger-than-life figure that somehow everybody loves, right? But if you study the history, you go, wait a minute, he was hated because he refused to, you know, join the army, change his name, became a member of the nation. Like, you know, all these things that made him enemy number one, you know, and I, I think I write about this saying the big joke is that, you know, the only, the only real uh, advertisement that, like, say, Muhammad Ali got was like a decon, roach commercial, which is in and of itself – Uh, this sort of cruel joke, if you will. Yes. You know? Yes.
3: We're spot-ranging issues from diversity in positions of power and leadership to the (laughs) exploitation of amateur and student-athletes and racial stereotypes here at Our Common Ground tonight with Dr. Tabidi Lewis. He is the author of Ballers, Ballers of the New School, Race and Sports in America. And if you have not... You should pick this book up and read it. If you are a sports fan and you follow the history of African Americans in sports, it is a wonderful reference helping you to underline and underscore those specific issues of white supremacy and privilege, racism, and racist concepts within sports. And one of the things that's interesting – Dr. Lewis, as you talked, is that during that period of time, there was not a very uh, many uh, sports idols who were female, African-American female or black females during that Mm -hmm. time. And Mm -hmm. then when we have, then when we got some in field and sports by way of the Olympics, um, Mm -hmm. they were vilified for either being Um, too mannish, quote-unquote, looking are too sexual looking. And then when Gabby Douglas came along with her fantastic um, Olympics performance last year, it was all about her hair. We're going to take some calls from you, our national number, 347-838-9852, right after this break, 832, I see you. I'll come right to you as soon as we're back in. Thank you, Dr. Lewis, for being with us, and thank all of you for being with us here at our Common Ground tonight talking about race and sports in America. We're going to take this break. We have to, and we will be right back with you the number again is 347-838-9852. Don't hang up 832. I see you and, to, and Dr. Lewis and I want to talk with you about these issues. If you are looking to come into our chat room, it's www.blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. <laughs>
2: my pay grade.
1: Look around you. One in four kids in the U.S. faces hunger. It's not always easy to see the signs, but in this land of plenty, there are kids that don't know where they will get their next meal. Join Share Our Strength in Food Network and take the pledge to end childhood hunger here in America by 2015. Learn how at nokidhungry.org. Their next meal could come from you.
5: At times people think that colorism is only important within the black community or within the American black community, but colorism is prevalent everywhere. It's prevalent in India, it's prevalent throughout Asia, it's prevalent in any country where you have an indigenous culture made up of brown people.
3: It's colorism and black women in America, our common ground, March 22nd, 10 p.m. live join the conversation my
0: skin is brown my
3: hope that you'll join us here at our common ground next saturday night march 22nd as we gather together to talk about colorism and black women here at our common ground
1: india declare real raw and right now
3: it's the i declare show with india declare 11 a.m. Friday and Saturday. End your week and start your weekend with real raw and right now. 11 a.m. Blog Talk Radio. I declare it. It might seem crazy
1: what I'm about to say. But all the cuts on the indigent, the poor, the children, the elderly, the veterans, wounded veterans, over and over and over again. There's no billions of cuts to the oil industry, big agriculture. There are no tax loopholes being closed. They are protecting the wealthy with a half-hearted assist from Wall Street Democrats, President. The same people who will not allow bills to be passed to build rebuild our infrastructure, voted 50 billion to rebuild Iraq's infrastructure. 100 billion to rebuild Afghanistan's infrastructure, but not a dime for the United States. These are the traitors of this nation because they are in power. See the same thing.. We can be as badass as we want. We now live in a nation where doctors destroy health, lawyers destroy justice, universities destroy knowledge, governments destroy freedom, the press destroys information, religion destroys morals, our banks destroy the economy. The inability to defend on all of these fronts, be it voter suppression, and you can go down the line. You can go down the line. The Wizard of Oz is 70 years old. Today, if Dorothy were to encounter men with no brains, no heart, and no balls, she wouldn't be in Oz. She'd be in Congress. <laughs> Advanced Urban Progressive Political Talk Radio. 10 PM Friday. Truth <laughs> Works Network. The Alpha Show.
5: The Alpha Show.
3: From the fires of the civil rights movement of the 60s, and as a sociologist and academic leader, she is a witness from the bridge. She is Dr. Joyce A. Ladner. Her scholarship offers a thesis of a conceptual framework that black people must formulate their own definitions and concepts of social phenomena from a perspective untainted by ethnocentricity and cultural arrogance of those who seek to compare aspects of black culture to a white middle-class model. Joyce Ladner has served as a key commentator on national social issues. She's appeared on such news programs as CBS Evening News, NBC Evening News, Nightline, and McNeil Lerner News Hour. She has written books which include Tomorrow's Tomorrow, The Black Woman, The Ties That Bind, Timeless Values for African American Families and Mixed Families, and she co-wrote The New Urban Leaders and The Death of White Sociology, of which she was the editor. At Howard University, she worked for the Academic Affairs Office, served as Vice President of Academic Affairs, and in 1994 was made Interim President, becoming the first woman to hold a position at Howard University. She is a sociologist, an author, an outstanding and innovative academic and educational leader, making her mark in black history and black progress. She is a witness from the bridge. Dr. Joyce A. Ladner on Our Common Ground. March 29th, 10 p.m. live. Witness from the bridge, Dr. Joyce A. Ladner. Join us. This is Our Common Ground. Thank you for joining us tonight. Transforming truth to power.
2: One broadcast at a time. Stay tuned with Janice Graham.
1: You're a client. You're my client.
3: Tuned into our common ground. Transforming truth to power. One broadcast.
1: At a time. And now, Janice Grail.
3: And thank you for being with us here on Our Common Ground with Dr. B. T. Lewis. He is the author of Ballers, of the new school, Race and Sports in America. And we thank him for being with us. And we're going to continue our conversation about scholarships and venues and immigration issues even and homophobia. But before we do that, we're going to go to our phones. I promised. 312, you're on the air with Dr. Tabidi Lewis. Thank you for being with us.
1: Hey, Janice.
3: Hey, house.
2: How, hey, how you doing are you?
3: there in Chicago? You getting any weather breaks?
2: You know, actually we finally got a looks like a little stream.
3: <laughs> I heard. Finally You're on the air with Doctor Lewis. What's your question?
2: Um, thanks for taking the call. Uh good to talk to uh, Doctor Lewis. Um, I just had a question about what's going on in the NFL with the um the owners trying to institute the rule about the uh, N word and it's a penalty. Um, you know, if it's if it's uttered. Um, I think they're still in conference or whatever. I haven't heard anything in the last week or so. But what his opinion was, and if he even thought that would be a good idea in, in college sports—be it football or basketball.
3: Even you're saying the N word. <laughs> I'm loving. I'm loving the American discourse on the N word. Uh, Tabidi, what's your take on this? Well, what does it mean? I'm
5: against the use of it. Period. Right. Uh, I think it is ironic that the owners who are all white men (laughs) uh, have uh, gotten together to decide um, the kind of language that's engaged. And, you know, we could get into a big discussion about how people tend to uh, try and make use of this term. And uh, some argue that, you know, it's a term of endearment or this is you know uh, uh part of the culture but i mean i think i think there, there's a lot of pathology involved in that it's problematic its history is is problematic i think um, jabari asim's book is a great example
2: of uh the history of the of the word but
5: um i don't i, I mean i don't think that for me, it's not a big deal regarding whether or not it's banned. I mean, it's a word that's banned in hopefully all people's homes, but many people's. Uh, I would assume, even our callers home uh, or uh, in their space, right and so um, um, I just i don't I don't see arguing for allowing or making it an acceptable term to be used. What I find interesting is the irony. Of um who's bringing this discussion about, and I you know I know people like you know will Bine and uh, I forget the stephen a i mean the bigger term is this the kind of overarching uh the owners controlling every you know these aspects of you know how you think how you what you say, how you maneuver you know these kind of components but um it's, it's never—it's not a term that I find uh, acceptable, uh, particularly amongst African Americans, given the history uh, of the term. And you know, I don't even want to—I <laughs> was going to make a comment about some of them may even some of the owners may actually have used or used the term. And I think it's funny that they're actually deciding that it can't be used on the field. Now, that's just me engaging a bit of hyperbole, but you know, um, there you have
2: it. What's your thought on it, uh, House? Uh, well, I agree in the uh, irony that the owners are the ones that are bringing it up, um, and that you know we have professional, college-educated um, black men like Wilbon, Stephen A. Smith, and others, you know who who do defend, well, Wilbon defends the use of the word is against the banning of it, but they do make a good point, and uh, when they bring up why stop at that word, why just make it that word, and shouldn't it be any other? Um, uh, uh, negative term. You no, know, that's right. A lot of, I agree with that. That's, that's a lot that's, of words right. being thrown All around. All the way. Here. That's You're right. right. That's a derogatory. You know,
5: words
3: specifically. Um, and 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 both of you, I'd like to get your response about the the whole issue of bullying in the NFL. Uh, and mm-hmm. it seems like the bullying is has most of the bullying that's been reported has been from white players toward either African-American or Hispanic players. What's that all about? Wow.
5: Well, um, it's interesting. Uh, we're talking about this question of, of language and outlawing uh, the, the end term, and we transition to this discussion around you know, all negative language and the bullying is often tied to homophobia or misogyny uh quite frankly the kind of language that's tied to it so if you look at the uh the Miami Dolphin transcript you you see not only racial epithets but also this sort of uh, uh anti-gay uh language being hurled uh within uh within the context of this bullying. And so um, these things are, are you know, are, are real issues. And so uh, a lot of the problem with the bullying is tied to uh, just like the, the use of this kind of negative language, but the bullying speaks to this distorted uh, notion of masculinity that exists in our society that in sport culture tends to become uh, hyper; uh, it becomes hyper expressed or hyper masculine, um, and um, and so that's I think that's a large part of it. You know, so many men don't have any real sense of what masculinity uh, is about, and I think it becomes even more confused within the context of sport culture, um, and particularly the very aggressive sports like hockey, basketball, i mean not basketball, hockey, football, you know, these kind of contact sports.
3: Mhm. One of the things that you point out uh that i particularly was drawn to in the book is uh your liking um, uh what Noam Chomsky contends that sports is an important tool for governance and you quote him if you can personalize events of the world, you succeed in directing a pe- people away from what really matters and, and, and is important, and that's what sports does in our lives. But at the same yeah. time, one of the things that have always bothered me, and again, I'm going to ask both of you to to respond to this, is the notion that sports is very when we say sports, the, we do not think about uh, Venus and Serena. I do, Venus and Serena Williams. We think about um, these other guys, <laughs> we think about guys.
0: That's right. And
3: to what extent yeah. we can change some of that so that all Americans can proclaim. Uh, that um, preoccupation with these games are are signify that we all uh, are reminded to have hope and remember our childhood. I mean I watch venus and 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 Serena Williams and think about how I spent most of my young adult and young life playing tennis and wishing that i could have been them and they are now me the other is that we have we are so inundated around this thing called sports because it's organized it's as you've pointed out dr lewis it's capitalized and it is part of our larger economy we have forgotten about kickball dodgeball wall ball and jump rope
0: yeah, yeah.
3: So you're both yeah. wondering, well, what is her question? And that is the role that sports plays in our lives and how we can become better people because we are either fans or we are very exhilarated watchers uh, of sports um, or because we have some investment in the success of a certain player or a certain group of players. How can we change the whole scenario? I mean, I am appalled at at a couple of things. One is that black players, whether it be NFL or NBA or NH, whatever, um, uh, uh, boxing, uh, are portrayed as thugs. Um, That... um, Black women in sports are portrayed as mindless machines. And how can we, and and, and then there's a certain amount of, in sports reporting, the feminization of black men in sports, that um, they are somehow preoccupied with, the, the 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 game, not the game that they play, but the game of being men made out of all the same mold, do you get what I'm saying?
2: Uh, I'm not sure if I
5: understand you're saying the feminization of black men in sport and your and uh
3: well, for instance, let me give you an example. It seems to me not being a big sports fan that when I read the news. I'm reading news about black men who are proclaiming that they are gay. I don't see any white players being reported as that they are gay or coming out uh as a as a as, as a player. When mm-hmm. black men come out, they are seen as a black player who is gay rather than some it, I, I, maybe I'm perceiving it all wrong.
5: Okay. Um, you're raising uh, a number of really interesting issues, and you've actually at least alluded to the answer to part of it. Um, fact. Over over 90% of sports writers, uh, you know, journalists, et cetera, you know, are white and male, right? Uh Fact. Uh, over 95% sports editors are white and male. And so one of the issues we have here is this real uh, kind of uh, uh, racial dynamic whereby we have to look at who's reporting the news and what are their worldviews and what is their agenda. Okay. Um, and so this creates part of the uh, problem as far as what gets reported and and even why, the other side to this is, <clears throat> no doubt, you're right. There's some a number of people are have written about and are writing about this this phenomena of fandom, and how the fans begin to channel their own personalities through these particular individuals, and it does work well. And as as Chomsky talks about uh, this sort of um, Um, uh, sport does serve as a distraction, and I try and allude to, when I was writing the book, the current distractions that were, uh, issues that were taking place that weren't being, uh, that you didn't hear a lot about, you know, uh, what happens to, you know, what companies are getting bailed out and given billions of dollars, and um, people aren't complaining about it. Uh, right. You know, all these sort of corporate illegalities, the, you know, the growing disparities between the haves and have-nots, because what people are interested in is who's going to win the NCAA tournament that's coming up, um, what team might be, uh, have the best chance of winning the World Series, uh, who's going to win the ACC tournament, and where teams are going to be seeded, uh, why are the heat, how come the Heat have lost of the last five and where will they be placed within the playoffs? Who got traded to what team? And you know, you ESPN has uh, who knows how many channels right now uh, that are you know taking place simultaneously. Sport reporting is twenty four seven, or as I joke in my book twenty five eight. It's nonstop. It's constant, and so uh, uh sport function to engender this sort of what Chomsky calls jingoism, this sort of blind patriotism. Mm-hmm. So you have all these dynamics taking place at once. And then, as you, uh, so as you point out, something really interesting is, you know, which ties to the sports writers' uh, percentages and disparities, you know, regarding the sort of equity or diversity of representation uh, of course, this ties to black men being perceived as thugs if i if, if that if that's the if, if I'm a white guy who has uh embodied uh, or not embodied but who is who is who has accepted these sort of negative perceptions and maybe even are mad that these sort of iconic heroic figures within their contemporary world that they have to write about don't look like them so there's no there's no, uh, there's no, there's a, there's a reason why the reporting is often of whatever negative things occur, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, so we, so you know, we know Babe Ruth had many, uh, for example, I'm just using him as an example, many um, womanizing, et cetera, et cetera, but that wasn't what was reported, and so it, this is all subjective. It's very subjective. And it's all about what's your worldview.
3: Hans, so, I appreciate uh, your call, but I want to get a response from you about okay. how you're feeling as a sports fan.
2: You know, uh, along the point Dr. Lewis was just making, you um, talk about thugs in sports. Um, you know, hockey, uh, they allow fighting. And during <laughs> the regular season, they encourage it. But it's they don't encouraged. call they don't call the people who do most of the fighting thugs. They call them enforcers, and at the worst, they call them goons. Uh-huh. Um, and they know who they are. Uh, they seek them out to protect their uh, better players. Um, uh-huh. And it's not just accepted, it's encouraged. Um, yes. But, yes. you know, football and basketball, uh, mostly black folks, uh, they get the term thugs, and that's that's a problem. Um, yeah. And as far as Chomsky, you know, who am I to um,
0: say anything about
2: Chomsky? (laughs) Yeah, um, and and I do agree that it's absolutely a distraction, but it is a good distraction um, for people like me coming up. Uh, The park down the street from me, it used to be packed summer all year round, um, softball leagues, basketball leagues, baseball, flag football, from kids and adults, and it kept us out of a lot of trouble. You know, it kept us um in a safe place and it gave us things to do and sports applied right, uh correctly can give you, um, you know, some, some really good uh uh habits. Um, it can give you discipline, it can give you the focus. So, yeah, on that level I think um he may have missed the good qualities in it, but overall once it is capitalized and you know, once it is branded and once the money comes into it, it's absolutely used um, as a distraction and um, as uh, to, as uh, means of exploitation. Even um, but yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. But as, as at different stages, it, it can be useful and helpful.
3: Well, thank you for your call and you keep it real out there in Chicago, and we appreciate your support and listenership. Let's go to eight three two. You're on the air with Dr. Tabidi Lewis. Thank you for your call.:
4: well, Hi, Janet. Hi, Dr. Lewis. Um, I, Hello. I i I want to thank you for this conversation. Um, uh, as a As a skeptical observer, very passive in my observation in regards to sports, um, I noticed earlier you spoke about the lack of graduation. Um, In regards to these athletes, I I guess my overall concern has been the uh, intensity of exploitation uh, of our young people and the overinvestment in the show and underinvestment in terms of long-term opportunity from the access um, uh, uh, to be able to to involve oneself in athletics. the the overinvestment in the short term and underinvestment in the long term. If reading levels uh, are not of proficient uh, standard, if, if kids are not graduating, I mean, what's the point? Like, is it Pollyanna to, to think that that young people could come together and say, hey, without us, you guys really don't have a machine at all, and if we don't get taken care of, we're not going to play. Is that, is that too out there to even think that? I mean, the young people are just
5: being flat-out exploited. Well, no doubt there's, they're being exploited. But they're also, uh, unfortunately, too many are brainwashed into believing that this is the pathway to success. Uh, upward mobility is, is through playing sport playing sports, and that that is, uh, that, is, that is the way to college uh, and a better life. But also too many are not seeing the college education as the reason for going as opposed to the opportunity to play and be in a program that allows them to be visible. Um, again, this comes down to the standards that we set prior to them reaching these points. Uh, what, is, what is the mindset that takes place within our communities? And also, in the negotiation of, 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 of even being part of these programs that really don't aren't as concerned as you know, they would like to say regarding uh, the uh, the graduation of these uh, young men, because if they were, the scholarship wouldn't be uh, annually renewable. And well, um, uh, most or- certainly, I thought I
4: thought your point um, with uh, Janice Graham was brilliant earlier in regards to the parents being knowledgeable of their role once these recruiters start sniffing around and and find value in their child at that point the parents need to begin to do their research on the business of this machine to protect their child it seems as though at the root of all of this people are really impressed
5: yes yes you're talking about the the, the athletes that are being recruited are impressed. Absolutely,
4: I mean they start young. Ms. Janice Fram spoke of her grandson being twelve, and they start very young. And and that was a brilliant point that the parents are not knowledgeable to the system that is seeing monetary value in their child.
5: That's right. That's right. Understanding the real dollars that are that are in play, knowing that, for example the uh, University of Alabama head coach earns a salary that exceeds $6 million a year, not including whatever endorsements and other fringe benefits, uh, is very important. So you begin to look at that, and there's no way you can tell me that, the, for example, that program doesn't have the resources, I mean, to, uh, to, uh, to guarantee scholarships and even uh, put in a trust resource i mean you know in my own book i list about seven different options but one of them is saying okay in the event you you can put you there could be paying and maybe not while they're playing but put in a fund in the event that they either graduate or get within a semester of graduation they didn't have access to these resources you know i was uh, having conversations with uh, a congressman who in missouri lacy clay tried to get legislation pushed forward that would guarantee uh a number after the first year of these athletes getting the athletic scholarship it becomes an academic scholarship, and that they're they maintain it based on their academic performance and then for every year that they maintain that scholarship after they've uh their eligibility is up, they're at least owed that much time to complete the degree if they have it. I mean, these are the kind of commitments that have to take place with this 1000000000 dollar industry that generates money from primarily two sports, to be quite honest. And so um, – but but the other side is concerted efforts by people like myself who, you know, I've written this book, but also organizing within the communities to provide the education and the sort of playbook for parents uh-huh. uh, so that when people come – These are the demands that we have. I need you to tell me that you're going to put in writing a guarantee that my kid will, you know, receive blah, 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 or that they won't take if They, you know, often what happens with a lot of kids is that they're just being kept uh, playing eligible. So they just take classes that allow them to be eligible to play. But when when their playing career is over, They've probably only earned about two years worth of credit that goes towards graduation. They're like, ah, oh, don't don't worry about taking that. We just need to, you to take stuff to maintain a certain GPA, you know. And so, uh, but but then when it's done, they're done. No, we we don't have any more resources for you, you know. Mm-hmm. Sorry, right? Well, I mean, just recently
3: happened. Um, the. Um, uh, The chair of the African-American studies program at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and two members of his staff were recently fired um, because of steering uh, African-American athletes in conjunction and in agreement with the athletic department into courses, and in the course of the investigation found that there were African-American uh, athletes who could not read above the fifth grade level yeah. and were taking courses. See, that's courses. what I'm talking about. Yeah, they were taking courses. I mean, isn't
4: all of this mute? If if these young people are do not have the basic skills of reading?
3: Well, well I think that the... – go ahead, uh, Dr. Uh, Lewis.
5: Well, the question is, what's the investment? Again, what is the investment in – in them, right? Uh, student athlete, and they all make this claim. Student athlete, and they want to emphasize it. The president of the NCAA, athletic directors, they all harp on that particular issue. But the the the, the reality: two things are the problem with the uh, UNC itch- situation. The scapegoat for academic fraud or uh, lackluster intellectual uh, curriculum is black studies, the African American Studies Program. And for me, that's problematic right there because we know there are many departments and programs that are that are friends to the athletic departments that are, uh, you have some uh, professors in many different departments that may be acquiescing to, you know, kind of like, courses that allow the athlete to do well they often group a lot of these kids in those kind of classes and so it's interesting that the black studies program becomes a scapegoat and suddenly mm-hmm. the university said we're going to study what how this program was able to do that you see what i'm saying well, and, and that's even more problematic because yeah. of the history in, in getting the black studies centers, et cetera, at the University of North Carolina campus that actually made use of the high-profile nature of the football players uh, over a decade ago to to make sure that that occurred. But, um, uh, the, but the bigger issue comes back to what is the university's investment in these athletes? Are they willing to not have them play on the field and make certain that their uh, academic skills are up to snuff so that they can then – Go and play, but they won't because we need you immediately so that we can generate this revenue based on your performance. You know, mm-hmm. uh, India. It's, thank it's, you it's,
3: so very much. Thank you, for thank Janice. You, you, uh, very insightful,
4: uh, very insightful dialogue. Thank you, uh, Dr. Lewis. Thank you, Janice. Oh no, thank that you.
3: Was, uh, uh, India declare of uh, the I declare show, and we're real pleased that she joined us because Dr. Lewis. I think she makes a very good point. Something that we should concentrate and focus our attention to in our community about what is happening to our talented athletes and uh, being aware of they are futureless if they are not being educated in these colleges. And what you said earlier, and that is 90% of them will never see the light of professional uh, athletic clubs in this country.
5: Yeah, over ninety percent, quite frankly. Over ninety
3: percent.
5: Scary. Yeah.
3: That uh is makes scary. makes us say
5: what what is the mindset going on here? You know?
3: That's right.
5: Um can I say something? You mentioned a point earlier regarding the feminization of black men. Uh and you're right, this is an interesting uh phenomenon where the uh, first openly gay uh potential draft happens to be an African-American man. And uh, the first basketball player who's openly gay, uh, you know, signs two 10-day contracts is an African-American man. And I think that's a real interesting dynamic, which, you know, part of me says, okay, uh, it's just another example of, uh, you know, sort of – leading the way, but I think it's also interesting in the sense of uh, the sort of um, the many sorts of representations uh, or the inscription on whether it's thug or violent of this sort of black male body in our society. And um, and uh, so, I mean, it's, it you raise this really profound uh, point of, you know, what do we do with this? Do we see this as... Oh wow, black men leading the way regarding uh, being open—you know—you know, know, uh, uh, saying okay, we're gonna look at sexuality in different ways. Or does it some suddenly go from you know these very sort of virile, uh, hyper uh, masculine uh, embodiment of uh, embodiment in our society of hyper masculinity, moving through these black male bodies to okay, we're gonna switch this and make. And it suddenly becomes a sort of
3: homosexual
5: engagement
3: in the context time. I place it in the context of the uh, marginalization and minimizing of the presidency of the United States, the mm-hmm. marginalizing of uh, black achievement in this country, and in terms of the attacks on the celebration of Black History Month. Uh, the marginalization and minimizing of public education in this country, because um, over sixty percent of all the children who attend public schools are African American and Hispanics. I put it in that context. So well. if we can, if we can dilute, I think that the strategy the new nationalist, white nationalist strategy across this country is about marginalizing and minimizing any entertainer, athlete, politician, um, black achiever that they can to minimize that so that they can maintain a semblance of white supremacy uh, under that system.
5: Interesting. I think it, it certainly does, uh, uh, not that I agree with this, but in the minds of a, you know, sort of patriarchal, heterosexual, um, focused society, uh, situating, uh, men of color, particularly, um, Black man within the context of sport and what it represents in the society is really um, uh, falls along those lines of the sort of marginalizing or minimizing what that masculinity may be valued as, you, you know, mm-hmm. because of, um, uh, again, just the role that sport plays regarding yeah. heroism and the, and the uh, emulation of those particular uh, individuals within our society. Um, and, uh, among fans or followers. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of well, people, right, you know, fandom is a big a, deal.
3: It's a discussion we certainly uh, have to continue. Tell us very quickly, we are going to have to run, and it's always never enough time to talk with you, but tell us very quickly about the projects that you are undertaking and, of course, uh, we can always buy your book at Amazon. It's Ballers of the New School, uh, Race and, Sp- and Sports in America. But what about your new projects?
5: Okay. Uh, and let me just add, you can also go directly to the uh, Third World Press website and uh, get, a, get copies of the book. Um, I just you. recently published. Yeah, I just recently published uh, last year a book, uh, edited book, Conversations with Tony K. Bambara, one of the uh, most important black feminist uh, writers to come out of the 1970s, um, her editor and best friend, Tony Morrison. And I am working on a book, book-length book study of her fiction that is called For the People, um, The uh, The Art of the Politics in Tony K. Bambara's Fiction. So that's more for the for more of the academic set, but I think, you know, if people are interested in literature uh and this particular era, they'll certainly find that uh, interesting. Uh the other project though that I can't wait to really um finish up is a uh, uh this a book around uh American sport museums and how uh heroism and and gender and race are performed within uh, sport museum spaces. So I traveled around to the Negro League Baseball Hall of Fame and the uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame and the uh, Basketball Hall of Fame and uh Football Hall of Fame. And each of these museums or slash halls of fame. Uh, you know, uh, museums in our society and monuments tell stories about the past. They tell us what the past is and they situate it for us. They, and uh, so I was just, uh, I'm writing about how those spaces do that in our society uh, that is so sport crazy and how it shapes the way in which we understand what it, you know, masculinity and heroism or gender for that matter and race. Uh, mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, you know, I think architectural spaces are really important and those monuments tell us stories. Wow. And people don't question them. <laughs>
3: well, we so. certainly look forward uh, for you coming back at our Common Ground and taking taking us on a tour of of those museums. And I certainly am so glad to uh, be able to finally. I mean, the last time we talked, we were going to talk in a month about this book.
5: <laughs> well, you know, I'm so. actually happy in many ways that it took a while because you know your program and the interest uh generates um conversation around it and what's really nice is that all the things that I raised then are relevant to what's going on now absolutely. which um is a great reason for people to pick up the book because it seems to have a sort of timeless uh impact so
3: absolutely and so thank you very much uh to Betty Lewis for joining us tonight and I hope that when you have finished your project on uh, the sports museums and race that we can have you back and talk about that. I am posting in our chat room how you can get to Dr. Lewis's website. It's ballersofthenewschool.com. Thank you so much to Tabidi, and let's stay in touch. Um, okay, I have much. I have much more about this book to talk with you about, and I hope you'll come back.
5: Okay, hey, with a pleasure. I look forward to it.
3: Thank you so very much, and good to talk to you, my brother. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Tabidi Lewis. The book, Ballers of the New School, Race and Sports in America and none of us can afford to spend time and supporting these teams with not understanding. We're going to be right back and say goodbye to you.
1: You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham.
3: It is it time for
1: you to upgrade your talk? Our Common Ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Empowering black America to achieve its success.
2: Out. And I also appreciate that post where you were a guest on uh, the ladies uh, talk show. I can't remember what it was. Oh,
1: Janice Graham.
2: Yeah, it, that was great. I listened. I had the day off, and it, it was a great. I was doing a little project here at home, and I was listening to that. That was oh, and they were great. I wish I, I should contact that lady and give me a copy of that cd so i could pass it out make well, a I, CD. I
1: think it's a uh, podcastable and in fact i'm going to ask janice graham to come on this show and talk yeah, to me about uh, what she does
2: And you guys i mean you guys tore it up i mean i was hooked i mean i didn't even get my project done i had to just sit in <laughs> listen.
1: janice graham uh... invited me onto her internet radio show she used to be on radio stations too but uh... you know the radio industry has changed dramatically She does an Internet radio show, and she invited me on this past Saturday night. I went on Facebook and Twitter and said, hey, I'm going to be on with Janice Graham," And people were listening, and there was a chat room going – I was on for the whole two hours of a radio show on Saturday night on the phone. And it was, it was really, really great. I, I, I was honored one, to excellent. be invited and we had a great time and I'm going to invite her on this show. And we'll have Janice Graham on and we'll introduce great. her to people who don't know who she is. Great. So
3: Calvin, thank you so very, very much for the kind words. And, and Calvin, you can join us every Saturday night, 10 PM here at our common ground on the other side. I'll be listening for you. And yes, We are podcast. Tune in, Facebook, our website at OurCommonGround.com and at Blog Talk Radio. Here at Our Common Ground, we're sending out the posse, looking for the Calvins of the world. Tell your friends. Tell your comrades. Join us on Facebook and share and tell. Our Common Ground where friends come to meet comrades. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Each Saturday, 10 p.m., our common ground. Powering up on Black (laughs) Thoughts.
5: times people think that colorism is only important within the black community or within the american black community but colorism is prevalent everywhere it's prevalent in india it's prevalent throughout asia it's prevalent in any country where you have an indigenous culture made up of brown people
3: It's colorism and black women in america our common ground march 22nd 10 p.m live join the conversation And we hope you'll join us next Saturday night as we gather to talk about colorism and black women in America. We want to thank House Music Lover for his call and I Declare of India, (laughs) India of I Declare. And we want to uh, thank Dr. Tabiti Lewis. You know, it takes a lot to consider all of the racial subtext thrust into sporting arenas upon the bodies of athletes of color and into the minds and hearts of spectators by the racial contract that gets set up by just playing some games. Uh, We also want to ask you to join us on Twitter at JaniceOCG and on Facebook. And don't forget, Alpha will return on Friday night. He's been well under the weather um, on TruthWorks Network next Friday night. Coming up on TruthWorks Network, a new show, Truth Soul Emergent, with Peter E. Matthews on Mondays at nine PM and he will be joining us at TruthWorks on March twenty fifth. Don't forget that this week we spent two billion, that's two billion with the B every week in Afghanistan. Billion with the B. But Detroit is under water. Poverty, poverty, poverty should be what we are focused on. Don't forget. Thank you for being with us tonight, and we hope you'll join us every Saturday night at 10 p.m. We are here to empower black America to achieve itself.
5: Don't even know who the real dictators
3: are. Thank you so very much for joining us tonight at Our Common Ground as we examine the issues of race and sports in America. Thanks to Dr. Tapiti Lewis for joining us and for you, our listeners. Join us next Saturday night, 10 p.m. as we talk about Hiala, Blackberry, and Red Bone Girls colorism and black women I'm Janice Graham I'll be listening for you the poor
1: and the underclass
3: are growing
1: racial justice and human rights are non-existent they have created a repressive society and we are their unwitting accomplices
5: this Janice Graham <laughs>
1: Every passing day, we are taking one step closer to a dictatorship.